Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to continue onwards on a history of the Church of the Middle Ages. Today, we're going to look at the Byzantine Empire, uh, part two, pretty much from the Crusades to the fall of Constantinople and the end of the Byzantine Empire, and that implications on the Eastern Orthodox Church. Let's go ahead and get started looking at the uh, kind of a short overview of the political military history, and then we'll look at some key intellectual figures, some theological debates, uh, relationship between Eastern and Western churches, and then some other important theological figures. So the political and military history of the Byzantine Empire experience, um, when I left off Byzantine Empire Part 1, we were in the golden age of the Byzantine Empire at the height under Basil II. Um, it was also around the uh, kind of classic controversy, but nonetheless, the Byzantine Empire was the focal point of trade and commerce between uh, the European West and the Islamic East. Uh, but that golden age began to experience a series of declines thanks to the appearance of the Seljuk Turks. Now, Seljuk Turks were a uh, paganistic group that existed in Central Asia. As they migrated West um, through Iran, they came into contact with Islam and converted over to Islam and working with the Abbasid Caliphate, but formulated their own empire and slowly began to encroach uh, onto key territories and came into direct conflict with the Byzantines. Um, they invaded and conquered parts of Armenia, Iraq, Iran, uh, and uh, parts of uh, modern-day Israel and Syria, and then won a key victory against the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, and therefore then conquering lands uh, in modern-day Turkey, uh, or then known as Anatolia. Um, with that defeat began to cause a withdrawal of Byzantine influence from Asia Minor, from Anatolia, um, and would be a catalyst for starting the Crusades. Alexius Comnenus, uh, as member, sent that letter to Pope Urban II requesting military support, uh, at least a small uh, elite force of knights to help augment his army and help push back the Turks. What he got was 100,000 knights uh, going on a crusade to reclaim Jerusalem. Uh, he took advantage of the crusaders and was able to reclaim some lost territories from the Turks in Asia Minor. Uh, but ultimately, the Byzantines were never truly able to recover. Um, also, what happened because of the crusades, uh, the, uh, the Western European cities and kingdoms uh, regained contact with through trade ports and with the establishment of crusader states established new trade ports in the eastern contacts as well bypassing uh byzantine and constantinople this led to the rise of like for example the italian city states the trading cities of Ven uh, venice and genoa uh, milan and so these cities began to encroach on uh byzantine trade and byzantine territory um and ultimately uh, began to have, there was some animosity, military uh, and trade, economic animosity between the Byzantines and these and the Italian trading city states. Uh, eventually, what ended up happening, like we talked about in previous lectures, uh, the Fourth Crusade, which its initial purpose was to conquer Egypt and free Jerusalem, shifted focus through some political manipulations. Uh, by a deposed son of an emperor, Alexius Angelus, to help him reclaim the throne of Constantinople. The crusaders agreed, which were guaranteed by promises of wealth. Um, when they captured Constantinople and placed Alexius on the throne, Alexius couldn't pay up, and the crusaders sacked uh, Constantinople as a response in 1204. And because of that, uh, the, the, um, the crusaders established their own, in a sense, uh, empire, 
uh, broken up uh, different French Crusader kingdoms in the, around the Byzantine area. The Byzantine Empire continued to exist in broken forms. There was three separate Byzantine states. It was the uh, the territory of Nicaea that was able to reclaim and retake uh, Constantinople in the 1260s. Um, but from then on, the Byzantine Empire was in a weakened state. Um, it continued to survive, uh, but with the rise of now the Ottoman Turks, which were in a sense successors to the Seljuk Turks, uh, began to encroach on Byzantine territory, conquering lands in Asia Minor, uh, and then conquering lands in Greece and the Balkans, and pretty much surrounding the city of Constantinople. Um, as we'll look at, uh, the the Byzantines will try to negotiate with the West to come to their rescue, providing military aid and economic support. Unfortunately, the West will not come through to protect Constantinople, and the and the Ottomans under uh, Mehmed II will conquer the city of Constantinople in 1453. And this marks the fall and the end of the Byzantine Empire. Now, some key intellectual figures. Uh, one of the more brilliant minds who appeared in this era of Byzantine history was Michael Ocellus. Uh, he had an astounding intellect, uh, one of the most knowledgeable individuals who knew everything from music, astronomy, philosophy, theology, mathematics, military strategy, uh, was a brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, he was appointed by Constantine X to be the head of the F Department of Philosophy at Constantinople University. And because of his knowledge and fame and, and how he revamped the philosophy department, he was able to acquire students as far afield as Baghdad and Ireland. So many different students began to travel to uh, Constantinople University to sit under the tutelage of Michael Sellis. Uh, Michael Sellis, in, in a similar vein, was like Peter Avalard. Um, and that he promoted reason intertwining with theology, that you can utilize reason to help that uh, explain theology in a sense and working with tying with them together. Michael Sellis was a big fan of Platonism and Plato. Um, there were attempts to accuse him of promoting Platonism over Christianity. However, he was always able to backpedal and argue and demonstrate that he still uh, admired, you know, obviously still remained a Christian. He just admired Platonism and that that did not over replace uh, his Christian worldview. Um, however, his student and successor, John Italis, was not uh, able to be so clever. Another brilliant individual, um, but he faced multiple condemnations, I think two different tribunals uh, for his viewpoint on fusing philosophy and theology, as well as 11 different anathemas were placed against him. Um, now, what's interesting, and in tying in with what we talked about in the lecture on scholasticism, and if you're not familiar with scholasticism, I highly encourage you to review that lecture on scholasticism um, and the rise of universities in the West. Uh, there was, in a sense, the Eastern Church never lost Plato and Aristotle. They always had the access and writings to Plato and Aristotle. While in the West, Aristotle, the only work that continued to survive was some uh, land translations of Aristotle's logic. It wasn't until uh, until after at least around 1000 AD that uh, translations of Aristotle's works from the East into Arabic and then finally into Latin West began to to, tran to transmutate into, into the Western uh, mode of thinking until into Western thought and Western life. Um, so Plato and Aristotle always existed in the Eastern church and in some ways melded with it, but it never had the same level of importance. Like in the West with the rise of universities and scholasticism, there was a blending and an intertwining of Aristotelian thought 
with theology. They, for example, like with Aquinas, you can use both together and work with both. Um, the East was very consistent on trying to maintain a firm separation. That doesn't mean they didn't apply Plainism or Arist Aristotelianism. Um, they did in certain ways, but they also maintained that uh, separation and really focused more so on church fathers, but especially on monastic traditions. The Eastern Orthodox Church is very heavily focused on maintaining those uh, monastic traditions and focusing on the monasteries. Um, and so that's where our kind of our next attention turns towards some theological developments. Um, with the victories of the iconoduals, or those who favored icons, the use of use of icons in church, the worship of icons in church, um, or veneration, as they would say, of the icons in, in the church, um, there was an immediate increase in the expansion of monasteries in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, think of it in a sense, there were universities, but universities were not as uh, elevated as monasteries were. Um, and then while in the West, there were monasteries, but they weren't as elevated as the cathedral churches, the parish churches and the universities. Monasteries were important, but they never hold that level of importance as we see in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Ruling class admired uh, the, mon the monks in the monasteries and paid for monasteries and supported monasteries and helped them expand. And because of these monast massive monastic movements that exist in the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, we see the rise of a particular form of worship known as hazikasm. Um, it comes with the Greek word hazikia, which is uh, means quietness or peace, in the sense trying to maintain and act, have that inner peace from the, from the light of God, in, in a sense. So what you do, um, hazikasm is, in a sense, a form of prayer to attain that inner peace. And what you do, you do two things. You continuously repeat the Jesus prayer, which hopefully you caught at the beginning of the slide, and I'll go back, um, where you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, and you repeat that over and over again. Um, and as well as you follow particular breathing techniques and certain levels of concentration and body postures. And by doing that, by repeating that prayer, you can then move into, in a sense, experience, have that divine experience. Uh, and move into uh, that divine, uh, using divine energies, move into that divine essence. Um, the most notable literature that comes down to us about hesychasm is a Russian Orthodox work known as the Way of the Pilgrim, which describes a pilgrim's uh, monk's practice in doing hesychasm. Um, there were some initial key figures. Uh, previous lecture, I talked about Simeon, the new theologian, who was kind of a mystic monk of the Eastern Orthodox Church that uh, opposed nominal Christianity uh, and, uh, and developed a disciplined power of prayer. But it was really individuals like Gregory of Sinai who learned from Simeon the New Theologian and Theodosius uh, Trinovo, both of those individuals who were monks and hermits, uh, emphasized that hesychasm uh, beliefs and teachings. So for example, Gregory of Sinai uh, learned from a hermit um, he emphasized really that heart purification and that and continuing the Eastern Orthodox understanding all the way back for, to Athanasius and origin in a sense uh, that you can you can experience deification. Uh, you can spare You can become divine through grace and you can do that through by practices of hesychasm. Theodosius would take the teachings of Gregorius and I and spread that hesychasmic spirituality into lands like Bulgaria and therefore it would continue to to translate into or or travel to lands as far as the Russian Orthodox. Um, the hub of the hesychasm teaching is the monasteries at Mount Athos. Remember, Mount Athos is 
uh, kind of like the central hub of monasteries in Greece um, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's still a, a popular location for Eastern Orthodox uh, monasticism. Um, remember, legend has that women, uh, that Mary set foot there and all the pagan isles fell, and therefore women are prohibited from stepping foot. And then thenceforth, no woman has ever stepped foot on Mount Athos. And today, women are prohibited from ever visiting Mount Athos. Um, the hesychasm movement uh, developed into a controversy uh, thanks to two individuals, Gregory of Pal- Palamas and uh, Barlam of Calabria. Um, Barlam was an Eastern Orthodox monk who criticized Western theology with its heavy emphasis on Aristotle while also criticizing Eastern Orthodoxy on its heavy emphasis on this spiritual mysticism and practices. And so Barlam was trying to kind of meditate a middle ground. Gregory Palamas was a person born in nobility who became a monk and was a contemporary of Gregory Sinai, never really interacted with him, but was a huge promoter of hesychasm. And so Barlam uh, was... Barlam attacked a lot of the practices of hesychasm uh, and was even invited to a hermitage that practiced hesychasm. And he spent some time there and came to the conclusion that it was wrong and dangerous. He ridiculed the prayer method and thought it was superstitious. It was ritualistic and superstitious. It had really no value and believed um, that, that in a sense, it goes against what scripture teaches that we can only understand God by indirect means, since hesychasm's focus is that you can understand God through this direct means of prayer, constant prayer and meditation. You can understand God and, and understand that and attain to that divine essence through divine energies. Um, Palamas responded back that, um, that ultimately, because prayer involves both body and soul, that this doesn't, uh, that there is no element of superstition or confusion about it, because when prayer, we pray by means, physical means, but also through my, it's a spiritual method too, since it involves the soul. Uh, he does argue that there is a distinction between uh, God's essence and God's energy. And this was an earlier debate within the Eastern Orthodox Church, that as a person, you cannot know God's essence, but you can know God's energy. And by practicing hesychasm, you can then understand God through that practice of prayer and through those energies, um, even though you may not understand or know God's divine essence. And he used the example of the light in the story of the transfiguration that the apostles saw the light, even though it wasn't, it was divine light in essence, um, they understood it in, in 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 God's activity or God's energy as being light, and so they understood it that way, even though they did not know in essence of that that was God's essence. And so he used that as a particular example. Um, the ultimate outcomes for the hesychasm controversy it was involved it was in a theological matter, but it was also a political matter as well. Um, there had to be two councils. The first council upheld Gregory's teaching, and then there was a shift ultimately where the the state opposed uh, Gregory Palamas's viewpoint on support of hesychasm and then reaffirmed it again in 1351. Uh, because of these two council rulings supporting Gregory Palamas and supporting hesychasm, Barlam of Calabria pretty much abandoned Eastern Orthodoxy and converted to Western Catholicism altogether. Um, 
the teachings and thoughts of Palamas was integrated into the Eastern Orthodox Church. So like I said, some of the key figures, you know, you have Maximus the Confessor, Gregory Palamas, um, Origen, many of these individuals uh, of the East really play a role in shaping Eastern Orthodox thought today and are highly studied and revered in Eastern Orthodox tradition. Um, like I said, deification is a very important part because it goes all the way back to Athanasius and to some sense Origen um, as a central part of Eastern Orthodox thought of salvation. That because of hesychasm and, 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 and that's one part of it, that human humans through Christ uh, could participate in God's energies. That through that prayer and through other spiritual methods, you can participate in God's energies and, and essentially become divine in essence. That's the deification. You become divine in essence, but you retain your humanity. Um, Palamas also had other important roles as well. Uh, one is uh, calls for social justice and protection of the poor and the oppressed, um, his tolerance for Islam, and that's why there's some suspicion that hesychasm might have some Islamic influence or Sufi influence within it, uh, as well as revered as a saint today in Thessalonica. Now, the uh, the relationship between Eastern and Western or Eastern and Western churches. After this great split of 1054, the great schism of 1054, there were attempts to try to help reunite uh, the Eastern and Western churches. Um, for example, at the Italian town of Bari, Bari, there was a dialogue between the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches in 1098. So 44 years after the great schism, there were attempts to be made. However, the first major attempt won't happen until after the Fourth Crusade, Michael VIII, who played a role in reconquering Constantinople for the Byzantines, he reclaimed it for, from the French Crusaders and helped reestablish the Byzantine Empire. He was still in a very much weakened position. Uh, one is he, he was emperor, but he also acted as a regent for the young emperor, John IV, uh, who he blinded. And because of that, he was excommunicated by part, Patriarch Arsenius. Um, he tried to beg and ask for repentance and forgiveness from Arsenius. Arsenius refused. And so instead, what he did was deposed Arsenius and appointed um, Joseph I as Patriarch of Constantinople. This caused a split as supporters of Arsenius for formed a group known as the Arsenites and continued to act in rebellion. So, <clears throat> so now um, Michael's in a very precarious position. Um, he's trying to reestablish control of the Byzantine Empire. He faces threats from the Ottoman Turks who are growing in the east. He also has to worry about crusaders. Uh, or another uh, proclamation of a crusade against him. So he's worried about the Normans, Sicilians, those who the Normans who ruled the kingdom of Sicily and, and southern Italy um, being close by. So he, he's worrying about these attempts against his kingdom uh, and removing him from power and authority, as well as internal rebellion. So he tries to gain uh, the support from the Catholic West. And so and he through delegations, he is able to submit to what's called the Union of Lyons in 1274, pretty much ultimately accepting uh, all the Catholic doctrines, pur purgatory, papal supremacy, and such. And so uh, officially putting the Eastern Orthodox Church under the control of the papacy in, in hopes of uh, gaining uh, Western military support and economic support. Um, with the announcement of the Union of Lyons, pretty much Constantinople went into a riot. Joseph quit, um, and and uh, 
And so uh, Michael appointed uh, John the 11th in response to that. And then Michael the 8th began a brutal campaign of suppression, uh, moving against uh, key figures within the Eastern Orthodox Church. He, he was known for his cruelty and his brutality. Um, unfortunately, he could not keep control of his empire and his kingdom together. Um, and ultimately, rumor news of his uh, lack of control and convincing of the people to embrace the Union of Lons spread to the papacy. So Pope Martin IV excommunicates Michael in 1281 because he doesn't bring the people with him. Emperor Michael dies in 1282 uh, and ultimately dies hated by everyone. Um, he, he even his own family uh, played a role in deposing him. And with his death in 1282, uh, there was not even a funeral service conducted for him. That's how much he was hated. Uh, his son, Andronicus II, reinstated, removed Joseph the 11th as patriarch, or John the 11th as patriarch, and reinstituted Joseph the first and renounced the Union of Lyons and began to strengthen uh, the uh, Orthodox Church in response to that. Uh, the problem is, is that the leadership, the dynasties that have led and the families that have led uh, the Byzantine Empire in for the next 150 years faced constant turmoil. There's economic problems because you still had the rise of the wealthy city-states in Italy, um, Venice and Genoa, were constantly uh, attacking cities and trade ports of the Byzantine Empire, encroaching on their territory and wealth. You had the Ottoman Turks as well, stealing and conquering lands uh, from the Byzantines. And so ultimately, there's there uh, was a series of declines. And so the Eastern, uh, the Byzantine Empire had no choice but really to come back to uh, the West. And in this case, the Council of Florence in 1439 was a major step forward Unlike the Union of Lyons, which was was totally politically motivated and really didn't involve church figures, the Council of Florence actually had many different bishops from the West and the Eastern Orthodox Church come together and negotiate a, a, a reunification. Um, though there was still the underlying goal of gaining Western support against the Ottomans, that doesn't change. And there's two key figures uh, in this council. You had John Bessarion, who was an Eastern Orthodox bishop who was pro-union, pro-union of Leons and reunification with the Western Church, and Mark of Ephesus, who was hugely anti-union of Leons and, and against any form of unification, especially a submission of the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Council of Florence uh, pretty much, once again, uh, caused, made, pretty much put the Eastern Orthodox Church under the thumb of the papacy. The Pope is supreme over the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church had to embrace the filioque clause. Remember the clause that said that from the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. The Eastern Orthodox Church opposed the part of saying and from the Son. Um, now, they had to accept the filioque clause, but they didn't have to say it in worship. That was the that was the compromise on that for the Eastern Orthodox Church. They had to support the teachings involved of purgatory and they were allowed to have leavened bread and communion. In the Western church, it was unleavened bread. Um, ultimately, Mark of Ephesus refused to sign this uh, this agreement, this union. Uh, and when news reached back to the Pope, Pope asked if Mark Ephesus signed, and uh, they said no, and he got frustrated and said, "We have then we have achieved nothing. And he was right. Mark of Ephesus goes back, pretty much starts a riot, and many, uh, many people began to turn from... Uh, supporting the Patriarch of Constantinople. Many Eastern bishops and lay people go into revolt 
um, over the Council of Florence. Despite this, Council of Florence, in hopes of gaining Western military support, nothing comes through. Um, there's no, at this point, there's no motivation to help support Constantinople. Uh, and ultimately, uh, Constantinople is laid siege, like I said at the beginning of the lecture, uh, by the Ottoman Turks, by Mehmet II in 1453. It's a huge military victory for the Ottomans. Um, as Constantinople was viewed unconquerable, it has re it had repulsed, repul uh, repelled, uh, repulsed <laughs> previous attacks by the Ottomans, as well as earlier invasions from the Arabs. Though the, the only time Constantinople truly fell was to the French Crusaders, um, the Ottomans were successful uh, in 1453. The uh, last emperor, Constantine, was died fighting to protect the city. His body was supposedly never found. Um, but Emperor Mehmed II was now ruler of Constantinople. Uh, with that came the power for him to appoint the Patriarch of Constantinople. And so the Ottoman sultans would play a role in uh, appointing the patriarchs and having a role in that power. Um, and he appointed Gennadius Scolarius as the new Patriarch of Constantinople and revoked uh, the Council of uh, Florence and pretty much uh and and pretty much separate the Eastern Orthodox Church, and which is why it won't be reunited until uh, the 20th century. So any abandonment, any hopes of reunification was completely gone at that point. Um, some Eastern, Eastern Orthodox figures from this time period that we looked at, um, you had Theophylact of Ocrid, um, who was educated in Constantinople and became a deacon. Uh, he was appointed to be the Metropolitan of Bulgaria by Emperor Alexius, uh, he was primarily known for dealing with the different rise of the Manichaean Gnostic groups of uh, Politians and Bogomils. But instead of arguing for persecution, he argue, argued for uh, promoting tolerance and persuasion as a means of convincing those uh, heretical groups to come back into the church. Um, his most important work is his commentary on the New Testament, which is still read uh, by many Orthodox nations and peoples today. It's considered a key commentary text. Uh, for reviewing the New Testament, um, just like for Reformed traditions to be John Calvin's commentaries, uh, Theophylact's uh, uh, commentaries is significant. Um, you had also Euthemius Zygabinius and Anna Comena. Euthemius was a monk who was unrivaled in his knowledge of doctrines and teachings. Uh, his most important contribution was the argument for the literal historical meaning in his Bible commentaries. Um, remember the up until this point from origin onwards and uh, origin and Augustine and so on, and both in the East and the West, you had the four or five fold different views of interpreting scripture. You had the literal, the moral, the analogical, and you know, the um, uh, and the allegorical, which was the highest form of interpretation. But now there's a, a subtle shift back to focusing on the grammatical historical meaning uh, of scripture. We see in the West with Aquinas uh, on on his focus on doctrines being literally uh, an historical, any doctrine had to have a literal historical basis. Nicholas of Lyra, the Franciscan, uh, argued the same approach, but it said that the literal historical grammatical understanding of scripture is a primary means. So we see that in some ways in the East with Euthemius. Uh, Anna Comena was the daughter of Alexius, um, and her work is important. Uh, the Alexiad, it provided uh, a snapshot into the view of the crusading period 
uh, especially with her father's reign and her relationship with her father, as well as some key theological figures in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, then you had Eustathius of Thessalonica, uh, Metropolitan Bishop of Thessalonica. Um, his major focus was opposing nominal Christianity. Those who you know say that they are Christian, but obviously do not practice, do not worship, practice Christian, just don't destroy the outward piety uh, of being a Christian. Uh, that's only, in a sense, nominal. It's only that uh, Christian in name only. Um, he offered the history of the Latin conquest of Thessalonica, which was a an account, a historical account of how the Normans captured and sacked the city of Thessalonica and is known for many of his different commentaries and uh, poetry and sermons and letters and other documents. And then finally, you had the uh, Comenatus brothers. You had Michael Comenatus, who was the Metropolitan Bishop of Athens. His primary argument was trying to restore Athens to be the cultural and intellectual center of Greece and of the world. He admired the Athenian past. He tried to encourage the citizens of Athens to try to return to that legacy, uh, but through political machinations, and uh, he ultimately was exiled from Athens, but he did leave a legacy of what life was like in that time period through his speeches and letters. His brother, Nicetas Okomenes, um, was more of a politician than a theologian. However, he was uh, he wrote an important treatise on the treasury of Orthodox, which was a defense of Eastern you know, the uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, he also wrote a record of the Fourth Crusade and its count and its capture by the Crusaders as well, giving us a snapshot of that time period. Um, so this is uh, the kind of the end of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. It's not for the in the Byzantine Empire. This is not the end of the Eastern Orthodox Church as a whole. Remember the the Russian lecture. The Eastern Orthodox Church would continue within the Eastern Europe with the uh, Slavic states of like Bulgaria, Romania, uh, Serbia, and Russia. So there will in Greece still nonetheless will have an or Eastern Orthodox tradition under the rule of the Ottomans. So the Eastern Orthodox Church will continue as is today. Uh, and it will be shaped by different other historical events. But this is the the end of our view of the church history in the Middle Ages for the Eastern Orthodox Church. The next and final lecture will look at the end of the history of the church in the Middle Ages for the Western Church. And I want to thank you all for joining us today on, on this review of the history of the church in the Middle Ages. <music>